You ever see that like cartoon or that guy's like digging and then all of a sudden he gets to the point where if you would have took one more stroke, he would have like broken through. That was always my biggest fear. You grind for so long to then stop right at that inflection point where you're going to start to like see the light at the end of the tunnel to like start to build something. And that was what like kept me going because it's not like this thing happened in two months. Like this took years. That like thought and that clip, that cartoon was always in the back of my head. Like I, I'm digging and I, I'm going to continue to dig because the last thing I want to do is like give up at the finish line right before I was able to make some progress. What is up, you beautiful bastards? It is your boy, hashtag steal my Tesla, aka Rabbi Can't Lose, aka Noah Kagan. Today's episode, I talked to Reed Dushur, the founder of Night Media. And if you have not heard of this guy before, watch out. He runs an agency that manages 16 of the biggest YouTubers, including Mr. Beast and the Dude Perfect Guys. Reed is basically the Jerry Maguire of the YouTube world. He started out with literally nothing, took a big risk going to YouTube, and has hit it big. If you've ever thought about starting an agency or you've got no business idea, you are going to love this episode. You can follow Reed on Instagram at ReedJD underscore or nightmedia.co to follow what he's up to. In this conversation, you're going to learn three gigantic things. Number one, the exact blueprint to start an influencer agency just like his. I think this is a big opportunity. Number two, how the pros make big money on YouTube. And three, why YouTube is just getting started and other ways you can capitalize on this opportunity. Enjoy those three gigantic things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Before we dive into the show, I am giving away my very own Tesla for Black Friday with our company, AppSumo.com. Yes, my very own Tesla. It's my favorite thing I own. I'm giving it away to one of you gorgeous people. If you go to AppSumo.com slash Black dash Friday dash giveaway, you can literally win my car and a bunch of other prizes, and it's eligible for anywhere in the universe and world. That's AppSumo.com slash Black dash Friday dash giveaway. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Clarice Gomez from the US of A. She left a review saying, Noah. The host of the Noah Kagan Presents podcast highlights all aspects of business, management, and more in this can't-miss podcast. Wow, that sounds really good. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Clarice, and every other one of you gorgeous listeners. If you want to shout out in a future episode, just go leave a review. I love seeing it. It inspires me, fuels me up, and check every single one of them. You're like a, a stepfather to all these children. I saw that you were you're a dad. Yeah, you too, dad, yeah. I have a lot of little kids. Uh, I mean, these, these Roblox guys are now, they're 18 now, but I met them when they were like 16. Met Jimmy, Mr. Beast, when he was 19. He's now 22. So yeah, I've been in this space long enough to like see these, these kids all grow up in front of my eyes. What's it like uh, being a parent? It makes me not want to be an actual parent. I think the more I think about it, I get to catch them on like the cool part of their careers where they're making YouTube content, they're hiring people, we're launching merchandise companies. I don't know if I want to go through like the first 10 years. I want to fast forward to like year 12 where we can build a business. By the way, are you a pack fan? Uh, pack, like Packers? Yeah. I used to. I used to watch a lot of NFL football. I've stopped watching NFL football just because of how busy I've been. And I feel like I'm more engaged in the gaming community than anything else. But I used to be a diehard Packer fan. Brett Favre, Aaron Rodgers. I, I, I'm from North Dakota, like small town North Dakota. Uh, so I used to go to Packer games all the time. Oh, yeah. I'm a huge Pack fan. So it's it's nice to see other Pack people. Yeah. Lambeau Field is sacred grounds. Have you ever been? Two years ago, it was on my, it was my bucket list in life to go to a Pack game. And dude, it was such an experience. <laughs> These people, like, this is their life. It's such an amazing, like, atmosphere, too. You kind of, like, turn off the interstate and you take a left on, I can't remember what boulevard it is, Lombardi Boulevard or something. And all of a sudden, you see the stadium, and Lambeau Field sits in the center of Green Bay. 
And like everything kind of revolves around the stadium. It's just the coolest place ever. That's a pretty far journey for yourself. I'm always amazed when people go from like North Dakota or just like a yeah. small city wherever in the world to, you know, I guess leaving and making something else of themselves. Yeah. I mean, a small town, my hometown has 2,200 people in it. So I kind of grew up as a farm kid and my sister kind of like paved the way for me to leave. When she was 19 years old, she actually took a nannying job out in New York, New York state. It was kind of like my, my first experience when I went out to visit her of actually being outside of the state of North Dakota, as crazy as that sounds. But people don't really leave, right? Like once you are situated in a state, it's kind of it's where you leave. Like I read a stat a couple years ago that said that most high school graduates don't leave now outside of like a hundred mile radius. I think it might be different now, but this was probably a couple of years ago when I read this. And it's so true. Like when I look at the kids I graduated with, but my sister leaving and then having success and she still lives in Manhattan, I think just kind of paved the way for me to take a risk and go to New York City, go to graduate school, to take another risk, move to Las Vegas to work with a sports agent. But without her leaving initially, I don't think I would have ever done that. How do you think other people who don't have older sisters? Because I think if, if it was me and like yeah. my brother and my family, I would have just had my corporate job and I would have stayed in that. I think that had my sister not done that, I probably would be a nutrition coach or something right now. I was going to get my master's to, in uh, dietetics and become a dietitian. I think that would have been my path, to be honest. So I don't know what what like happened inside of her that made her want to leave the state and pursue something else. But I don't know. For people that don't have that that person in their life, I think you just kind of get stuck in being comfortable and in what environment you're in. Sometimes I think it's like, well, maybe being a dietitian would have been pretty fun. Probably. I, I mean, it's, it's a great career path. I just get to do a lot of fun things, man. Like I, we got to do finger on the app. On finger on the app? Yeah. So we, we had released an app. So Mr. Beast and Night Media released an app. It was last person to take your finger off your phone with $25,000. And so we had 1.1 million concurrent people playing with their finger on their phone. And you, know, you couldn't just duct tape your finger to your phone. You actually had to like move your thumb across and like hit certain things that would pop up on screen. I got to help him raise $22 million for Team Trees to put to plant 22 million trees around the world over the course of the next decade. I mean, I've just got to be a part of all these like cool activations and experiences that not saying I wouldn't have if I would have been a dietitian, but it's just it's put me in a different position to be able to work on some of these bigger projects yeah i've been thinking about this last week i had a really i was, I was having a conversation with a friend about regrets and it's almost like you're kind of getting a chance to see the life you didn't regret oh uh, yeah that's a good way to put it it'd be interesting if i could go back in time and see what i would be like had i not left the state right and maybe it's inevitable maybe it would have just taken me another three to five years to eventually leave and try and do something else i don't know I never really truly think about that. Like what would have happened had I not went out and tried to venture into this force agency thing. I watched the movie Jerry Maguire a thousand times. And so I wanted to be in that atmosphere. Like I wanted to be a sports agent. I wanted to be in that like fast moving negotiating world. And so that was also like one of those, those points of my life where I was like, I want that. Like I, I want to be in that industry. Right. And so maybe I would eventually have done that. It just would have taken me longer. You just knew that was the calling? I think it's amazing when people know the calling. Like you watch the movie and you're like, oh shit, this is it? Yeah. I don't think I knew it was my calling. I think that I knew I wanted to try it. I knew I wanted to experience it. I didn't know if I wanted to do it my whole life. 
And then I, I ended up working for a sports agency and I ended up working with all these NFL football players and Hall of Famers and then just found Do Perfect on the internet. A couple months later, it just clicked. Like, hey, I think this is where everything is going. I think this is the future of digital media. And uh, fast forward a few months, I was packed in my car, headed to Dallas, Texas with no real plan. My parents thought I was crazy, but uh, it just felt right. In that moment, it just felt like it was the right decision. It's interesting. One of the things I've been trying to work on is just like feeling more like that. It felt right. And really kind of trusting what feels a little bit more like, okay, there's something here that feels good. Like I was supposed to go to Mexico next week and I was like, it's amazing. But I was like, I don't want to go. I don't feel something's feeling off. Taking a step back on that, I guess, how did you know that the opportunity seemed bigger? Because I think that's something that a lot of us are wondering, like, is this the actual opportunity versus not? And then in graduate school, how did you actually create that opportunity of of getting into the becoming Jerry Maguire? It was actually a at a bar at a hotel, I was doing an into this is a crazy story. So I was doing an internship for a company that puts on basically football games for kids trying to get drafted in the NFL, not the uh, the large one, which is the Senior Bowl, but a different game where these football players are showing up and they're playing this game, and there's NFL scouts there, and there just so happened to be a sports agent who was there who represented a player that was playing the game. And we were sitting at the bar and we just started having a conversation out of thin air. And he was like, listen, if you're willing to come out and go to graduate school or work in New Jersey, I'm willing to give you an internship so you can kind of learn what this is all about. And I jumped at the opportunity. Again, to that point, I really hadn't even thought about leaving North Dakota. I still really wanted to go down that, that dietitian route. And him offering me that, even that internship, not paid, whatever, I was just going to jump at it. And I've always been, you know, you're talking about like decision making. I've always been a go with my gut type of person when it comes to decisions. I'm like you, like if something doesn't feel right, it's a no. And this was like a gut decision that I had to make. It wasn't based on, okay, well, where do I think I can be in five years if I say yes to this? Or how much money do I think I can make in a couple of years? None of that even came into play. It was like, does this feel right for me personally right now? And do I want to do it? And that's how I made the decision. There's no thought process outside of that that really went into it. So were you in graduate school and you met this guy at a bar or were you in North Dakota? I was still getting my undergraduate degree and I was, uh, this was the internship in my fifth year so I could graduate. It was like a three-month internship. I needed as my final credit to then walk at graduation. So I was still living in North Dakota. I had just flown out to Virginia to be a part of this game uh, for a couple weeks and I was flying back home. So should I just go wait in bars to meet guys? It's kind of like what you're suggesting that if I really want to find my future, or, you know, we have a lot of younger audience or people who yeah. they aspire to be like me or they aspire to be like you or be like Mitchell, who's on the call as well. So I think what I would say to them is be open to opportunities. And then when they come, take advantage of it. I think for me, I could have easily said, hey, I don't want to go into Virginia and be a part of this game. Like, I, it just doesn't seem that interesting to me. I never wanted to be in events management. So me thinking about like, is this something I want to do long term? No, but it was an opportunity when I was trying to figure out what I really wanted to do with my life. And there was multiple things that I was jumping at. I was just jumping at opportunities because you want to put yourself in the right position to when an opportunity then presents itself for you to do something that you find interesting, you're there, right? And you can say yes. For a lot of your younger viewers and people listening that probably don't have a career yet or trying to figure out what that career is, they should just be taking every opportunity that comes their way. Right. Whether that's like volunteering at a sports game or doing something else, like they should just continue to say yes. And eventually, 
hopefully you'll be presented that opportunity where, you know, you're presented with something that you want to do for the next couple of years of your life or the rest of your life. I was just in a lucky position that I said yes to go to Virginia to then led to me sitting at a bar getting a chicken salad uh, and that guy sitting across the bar and him and I having a great conversation. Lesson learned is chicken salad, everyone. Stay healthy. Yeah. Look good. It seems so crazy now to think about it, to be like, that's kind of where this all began. But that was like the decision that led to what we built today. I think what's also fascinating sometimes that I I try to think about is like surfing. I don't surf. I'm in San Diego and people love to surf out here. Is that you got to actually be in the ocean to surf. Like you can't catch any waves from the beach. I really dig that. They also, I think what you said, which is interesting and people see you now like, oh, look, of course he's there. And of course you have, it's, but they also don't see all the things that didn't happen. Like all the meetings you did go to that didn't end up meeting guys at bars. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll tell you a story and I've told this on a few podcasts now. I got this internship, this sports agency in graduate school. He ended up not hiring anyone because he was kind of a one-man show. That's fine. And I ended up getting another internship in the industry during graduate school. That was, you know, a six-month thing, but didn't work out. And I ended up graduating and I didn't have anything, right? I had two sports internships at two sports agencies that I found really interesting, but I wasn't able to turn those into a career. They just weren't at the point where they wanted to hire anyone. And so I was then left at a house that my my parents' friend owned in Las Vegas, recent graduate, no job, knew I wanted to work in the entertainment industry. I would drive back and forth to LA on a Monday. I would stay until Wednesday, Thursday, and then drive back to Las Vegas. And I had resumes and I would just go show up. I would go to like William Morris's office, then I would go to CAA, then UTA. And I was like hitting all these agencies, just like trying to get an opportunity. And I would sit in the lobby and I knew a lot of the big sports agents like Tom Congdon, Lee Steinberg, like I knew what they looked like. And I would look them up on the internet. So I knew like when they walked by and some of these guys would walk by and I'd walk up to them and like introduce myself, hand them my resume, tell them what I wanted to do. I got blown off a hundred different times. I got kicked out of Lee Steinberg's office by an intern. He's like, you got to just get out of here. Right. And so I was just like, same situation. Like you can't surf if you're not in the ocean. I wasn't getting an opportunity if I didn't put myself in those situations. And that led to me then getting an opportunity in this industry. But I knew that I had to drive to LA. I had to sit there. I had to like try and force my way through the door. I didn't think at that time anyone was going to open a door for me. Hold on. So let me understand. You graduated. You had two internships. What did you do in the internship? Was it just like shit work? Was it like copies? and Pretty much. It, the first one, it kind of ended up me just like going to the filing cabinet and reading every single contract that was negotiated over that last decade. And so I got really familiar with like the NFL CBA. I got familiar with like contracts and who got paid what. But mostly shit work. I didn't really learn a ton. My second internship really should have just been an internship on cold calling because that's all I did. And it helped me a lot. Like just picking up the phone and dialing, trying to like get opportunities for players. Um, so they helped, but mostly shit work. Yeah. And then I, I'm just trying to understand the journey. And then I do definitely want to talk YouTube stuff and, and negotiating and being a dad. But then you're like, hey, I want to be in entertainment. So I'm going to go live for free in Vegas and then just go to LA and, and knock on doors. Yes. Well, I didn't have anywhere to go. And I knew I didn't want to go back to North Dakota because that's not where the entertainment capital is. That's not where the action's happening. So it was like last case was, hey, I'm going to move back to North Dakota and figure it out. I talked to my dad. He was like, don't come back home. Like uh, one of my friends has a house in Vegas. There's no one in it right now. Just go live in there for a few months and let's figure it out. So I did that. And my plan was I'm going to continue to be in LA, like where I think a lot of this is happening. 
and I'm going to try and meet these people. I would obviously send them emails, but that only goes so far. Even when you'd call the office, like you'd never get them on the phone. My best case scenario is me catching them in person, having a conversation with them and actually having that resonate. That was the philosophy. I was going to go sit in CAA's office or sit in their lobby downstairs until I saw someone that I recognized come out and then I would go approach them. That was the strat. Whether that strat was right or wrong, I don't know. I've built some relationships off that that I still hold true today. And I have a, another story that I'll probably tell you guys a little later about like how it all kind of came full circle a couple of years ago where like me getting kicked out of those offices kind of came back around with one of my friends actually went number two overall in the NFL and he was asking me what agent to go to uh, to pick. So it all, it all came back around. Payback's a bitch. Didn't I just tell you that? And that's exactly what I was thinking as soon as he called me. I was like, <laughs> well, who's it, who's it down to? And he like named the three guys and I was like, okay, two guys kicked me out of their lobby. The other guy couldn't have been nicer. It was just like really funny situation. All right, who was the nice one? Who's the shitty ones? I won't say who the shitty ones were, but the nice one and the person they ended up choosing was... Um, Ryan Tolner at Rep One Sports. And he actually wasn't in the office when I visited and I was trying to get a meeting, but I left a resume on his desk and you know, I thanked everyone for like letting me do that. And he sent me an email a couple of days later, like really apologetic for not being in the office. Like, hey, it's awesome that you actually showed up with your resume. Most people just send a cold email. He's like, so I, I do appreciate that. Like we're not hiring at this time, but like I will keep you in mind. And yeah, it's just like a kind of a generic email, but more addressing me. And that stuff goes a long way, right? And then I, I remember that. I still remember that to this day, like getting that email and being so excited that he actually was like, wow, like this kid actually drove from Las Vegas, came in, sat the resume on my desk and like wanted a meeting. And so he, that's who they ended up choosing. So then they had this number two overall pick, I guess. Who was the player? Carson Wentz played at North Coast State. Oh, wow. The Eagles, yeah. Well, two things with that. So how'd you actually finally end up getting a job? Was it Because I, I think what a lot of people say to me is like, I don't have a network. I don't know anyone, which you literally didn't. I didn't know anyone. Literally no one. Yeah. I ended up getting a job, actually a company in Las Vegas that I didn't know existed because they had relocated from LA to Las Vegas about six months prior to that. And it was just kind of word of mouth, like, hey, I met this kid, he's looking for a job in the industry. And it just kind of got back to them that I was looking. And I ended up getting a meeting with one of their associates and he took me out to lunch and we just kind of clicked. A couple months later, I, I met with the president. He offered me a job for literally no pay. It was like, kind of make your way. If you can make it work, I, I will pay you. And that's kind of how this all started. When I went into this, like, I, I understand people say that, like, I don't have a network. How am I supposed to get started? I didn't know anyone. My parents didn't know anyone. I'm from like a small town, middle of nowhere in North Dakota. Like I had to make it happen. I knew it wasn't coming to me. It's interesting. You were just putting, you were, you were in the ocean, man. I, I have a lot of respect for that. Big props to yourself. To be honest, like if it wouldn't have worked out, I think I'd still be doing it to this day. Like I, I would have just been like on the grind trying to figure out how I can make this thing happen. I think a lot of people, you ever see that like cartoon or that guy's like digging and then all of a sudden he gets to the point where if he would have took one more stroke, he would have like broken through. That was always my biggest fear. You grind for so long to then stop right at that inflection point where you're going to start to like see the light at the end of the tunnel to like start to build something. And that was what like kept me going because it's not like this thing happened in two months. Like this took years. That like thought and that clip, that cartoon was always in the back of my head. Like I, I'm digging and I, I'm going to continue to dig because the last thing I want to do is like give up at the finish line 
right before I was able to make some progress. Dude, I love this. This is such a good one, man. One thing that I've been doing, like I, I told you before when we got on the call, I lost my voice because I was screaming while I was losing at chess. <laughs> and then I look at our YouTube channel as we've you know started doing it this year. And as it's been growing, I'm like, ah, oh, it's not where we want to be. But then I, I do a 10-year thought. I'm like, okay, if I just stick with it, where am I going to be in 10 years? And that really kind of gives me a lot of motivation. I'm like, dude, if I can just keep going in 10 years, like I'm going to be fucking unreal in chess. And then same with, you know, with the other different, like with, for us, it's doing the YouTube stuff. Yeah. Most of my clients, it's not like success came out of nowhere for them. People think that Mr. Beast just blew up yesterday, right? Or in 2018, we started getting subs. Jimmy has six years of content on his channel that has no views. He just continued to make videos and to improve day after day. And eventually, like, he hit that point where, okay, he gave away 100 pizzas to homeless people in random houses. It just, like, got views, right? And then he backed it up with another good video. But those first six years were brutal, right? Same thing with Typical Gamer. Same thing with another client of ours, Preston. Preston had been doing this since he was 14 years old. He's now 25. It took him until he was 20 years old to really make any kind of money and have any kind of success in this industry. It's also my biggest worry for YouTubers, like young kids that want to become YouTubers, is they think it, it should happen so quickly and that they should be successful because they're just doing it. If you want to become a content creator and you want to do YouTube or you want to become a Twitch live streamer, it's going to take you a long time. Like you have to love it. And if you don't love it, don't even get in the game because it's very ultra competitive, oversaturated, and it's going to take you probably five to six years even to maybe break through a little bit. I like both sides. Sometimes I'm like, man, being naive is the, is the best. Because if I don't know how long it's going to take, I'll just keep going for a while. But I also think if you say, hey, it's just going to take five years, or I like to call it sometimes the 10-year rule to becoming a millionaire, is that if you know it's going to take that long, you're like, oh, okay, well, I have to stay at least five years. We made a video called The Law of 100, which is like, if you're doing YouTube or podcasts or business, or whatever, just put out at least 100, and then you can quit. You also need to improve video after video. You can't just like throw stuff out and hope people are eventually going to watch it. You have to really understand, okay, why are people not watching this video? Why is the retention so poor? And you have to continue to improve your content. That's one thing all of our clients are really good at. If you understand that, you're not bound to be successful. You just have a much better opportunity to become successful as a content creator. If you're willing to put in the time, willing to understand why videos do well, willing to watch videos about Jimmy talk about why thumbnails are so important. I'm not like trying to say kids don't don't try and be a YouTube creator. I just think they should be prepared at what kind of grind this industry is. Well, I also think it's figuring out if they enjoy it or how do they make it enjoyable, right? Like I think we've noticed for ourselves, it's like, all right, we're making videos because this is like a popular topic and we make the video and we're like, yo, that wasn't fun whatsoever. We don't want to keep doing that. And so finding like, oh, I love making videos. <laughs> We were talking about how like you could make a YouTube out of anything. Like we were talking about being like an inspector for houses. And like literally that'd be pretty interesting to make a whole channel where like, hey, you look and you show all the dirty shit about people's houses. And so I think it's just finding ways that you make it enjoyable for yourself that you can do it for five to 10 years. Yeah. Or else you'll get burnt out. You'll be a year in and even you'll have some kind of success, but you don't enjoy it. What's the point? If you don't enjoy what you do, then why are you even doing it? It's funny. With Mitchell's is on the call. We've been talking about that recently. It's like we don't have to do anything. And so it's just like, what do we really want to do? And then it's like, all right, let's just, let's just do that. <laughs> That's like, it's, it sounds so simple, right? It sounds like, yeah, duh. But I think we, we kind of get sidetracked a lot where it's like, oh, we have to be doing these things. Yeah. How did you see the opportunity, man? You know, I, I've been a part of a few rocket ships in my career. And, you know, there's always different pieces why. So I'm curious what, what you were seeing so that I'm like, so I can copy it for future stuff. 
I don't even think I viewed it as an opportunity. It was more of a, what do I want to do with the next five years of my life? And it wasn't that I was, wasn't enjoying working with athletes. It just um, wasn't as interesting as I had thought. I wasn't building the relationships with our clients that I thought I would. And I'm, I'm so close with a lot of the guys that we work with now. It was just more of me personally saying like, is this something that I want to be doing? And I was already thinking about this before I came across Dude Perfect's channel. And then I eventually saw this thing and I started to dig into it. I literally watched every single video on their, their YouTube channel at that time. And they only had a couple million subscribers. And I just, I really started just investing my time into this industry and like, okay, when was YouTube formed? Like, who are the biggest creators? Why are they successful? And I just started getting it like in the back of my mind and I was thinking about it quite a bit and I just fell in love with it. I became so overly obsessed that when I left, like I said, it felt like the right decision leaving the sports agency world and working in digital. And then I think the point where I was like, okay, this could be something is when I closed like that first deal with Dude Perfect. It's like the first sponsorship deal with Callaway Golf where I came in, I sold it to their CMO, he bought it and I was like, okay. I can see where this goes. Like I can see that advertisers will continue to spend, even if they're not doing it currently. I can see how this is going to be a thing two to three years from now. I also understood back then that like Dude Perfect had something completely different than what Odell Beckham and Richard Sherman currently had, is they like had their own distribution platform. They could launch a t-shirt on their YouTube channel and sell it direct to consumer. Whereas like Odell and Richard, like they had a following on Twitter, but it just wasn't the same. Dudeperk's ability to launch products and businesses with that large YouTube channel of kids watching their content every day, it provided so much of a bigger opportunity that that's like when I really realized, okay, this could be something much bigger. I like that you just liked it. If I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done it. Yeah. I'd have been like, eh, let's go on to something else. Why was it not as cool to work with the athletes and be the Jerry Maguire person? I didn't get a lot of fulfillment out of it. It was a lot slower paced than I thought it was going to be. When football season wasn't happening and it wasn't the fall, it was incredibly slow. And it was a lot of like digging for things that didn't exist, like trying to pull deals out of a hat, which is some of the business we're in a little bit, but we're also in the business building business. So it's like we're taking Mr. Beast and we're taking Preston and we're building a kid's production studio and we're building mobile apps. And back then, I think I felt like it was going to be like 24-7. And the fun parts were like the two weeks of free agency. And then the first couple weeks of the season, that was it. And other than that, it was very slow. There's a lot of trench work of like trying to dig up these deals. And I just, it just wasn't what I expected. You know, one of the things that a lot of people ask is starting agencies. I guess I was trying to think is like, how do other people start an agency off the ground? Like if I wanted to do e-commerce agency or if I saw that, you know, swimming was going to be big, synchronized swimming. And I'm like, oh, I want to be that. An agency for swimmers. Like an agency to represent swimmers? Yeah, kind of like what you've been able to create. I'd go the non-traditional route. So I'd find the biggest streamers on, or I'd find the biggest people that were in that swimming community on TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and I'd start that way. I'm almost positive there would be some kind of swimming channel that wouldn't be very big yet that not a lot of people know about, and you would attach yourself to them, right, and help them grow. And then I think you'd learn a lot from that to be able to then go sign maybe a bigger client. But that's how I would do it. Hell, that's like currently what I do still to this day is like you try and find value of things that you think are going to be popular in the next couple of years. But if someone's like, okay, synchronized swimming, I think it's going to blow up. Go search all that. Like who's doing that on TikTok, right? Who's doing that on YouTube? 
there's content for everything on YouTube. Like I fell down this ASMR rabbit hole a year ago and I didn't even realize this was a thing until I started like stumbling upon these massive ASMR channels and all these creators and things like that. You could have built a large agency just around ASMR, like let alone like other areas of YouTube. Like ASMR is a massive part of YouTube, right? I can't imagine the watch time numbers per month. Um, so there's a lot of little areas that people can fit into. And then what are the economics of that? Like, do you go and say, hey, I'm going to get you integrators and then you go and get sponsors and take a cut? That is a part of our business, but it's not really our focus, to be honest. I never started this business to like scale talent management. I started this business because I won, like I was working with one of the biggest channels right out of the gate. Like I got, I got pretty lucky in that regard. So I wanted to go replicate that. I wanted to find the bigger channels that had the ability to then build bigger businesses and build things on top of that platform. And so for me, like it was less about, oh, let's do all these sponsorship deals. It's more about how do I find a creator? Like let's take fishing. How do I find a, a fishing creator who I think has selling power who can build a company based on selling tackle, right? And then how do I start that business with them? That's more of our philosophy. It's less of, hey, how do we sign this to YouTuber and get them a bunch of branded integrations? Because that's all great and it's a good business, but that doesn't really scale. You're just kind of always playing that rat race of getting sponsorships. And like I said, it's, it's part of our business, but it's not really our core focus. What is your core focus? Our core focus is, like I said, it's, it's building businesses around the clients that we represent. So just the, the Mr. Beast fans listening. So we've done Finger on the App with Jimmy, which was incredibly popular. We've done Creator Games, which was a studio deal we did with YouTube Originals. And we're doing Creator Games number two in a few months. Not Rock, Paper, Scissors. We'll do a new game. We've done um, Team Trees. So we raised $22 million for Team Trees. We're actually launching a consumer products brand in the next 60 days around a video series with Jimmy. And then we're working on a few other mobile apps with some of our other creators. It's like building other businesses with them is really what gets me excited. And so those are the things that I spend most of my time on. Like we have a much bigger team now that can focus on sponsorships and integrations and appearances and things like that. And then we also have a whole part of our business that works on licensing, apparel, merchandise, and consumer packaged goods. And so that's also a large focus of ours. You'll see some of our clients have products and toys in Target and Walmart. Uh, some of them have large consumer brands already in the kid space or in the toy space. I think the the word, like the correct vernacular years ago is like we're 360 management. And I think that's changed a lot to this day. We're really like extensions of their business, if that makes sense. We don't get too involved in day-to-day -day production, but we are extensions of their business in every other facet that they're working on. So the two things I was curious, one, I did make a, meet a giant YouTuber recently and it was like, wow, he's still doing his own accounting. And then I was like, well, who does your customer support? He's like, I'm doing the customer. And then I was like, well, who does the fulfillment? He's like, I do the packaging. And I was like, why don't you just make the fucking videos? Like, you're the best at that. And he was struggling with like, oh, I, don't, I can't trust anyone to run the rest of the operation. And, and Mitchell, who's on the call, is, is like that with, with all of our stuff. He, he's my read. Yeah. He's not mine. He's our read. And I think there's something to people kind of think, well, why do I need them to do it? It's like, well, why don't you just focus on what you're great at? So it's interesting, you provide kind of like all business operations, pseudo almost CEO of the business while they're the talent and creative. Is that right? Yeah, we, we definitely don't do financial management. We don't do their accounting. So most of them have their own CPAs and accountants. Uh, we don't do their legal work. So we do outsource a lot of the legal to different entertainment attorneys. But all those people usually report to us, right? Like we're that like singular core that they're all coming to. 
as a creator, if you don't trust someone to do your like pick, pack, and ship, and accounting, and bookkeeping, you're going to be fighting an uphill battle with time the rest of your life. At some point, it's like you have to be able to trust people to outsource your like just even pick, pack, and ship. Like him shipping his own products, and I don't know how big his business is, is an incredible waste of his time. He should be focusing on the thing that he enjoys and the thing he does really well, which is create content. And there's people out there, and he might also think that, oh, it's actually more cost efficient for me to do it personally instead of like outsourcing it. There's a lot of businesses out there that are very competitive with each other that make pick, pack, and shipping, you know, very cost efficient, especially for an influencer to outsource it. So it all comes down to trust. Like you have to just be able to trust people. And that's what my business is really built on is creators trusting us to help with all these things. Two things I was curious around as we're talking about this is what are the revenue different streams? I don't need to know Mr. Beast or any of these guys how much they make, but what are the different revenue streams? Because I think that'll spur a lot of ideas for other content creators. I'll just take it more from like a like a holistic approach across creators and less of like an individualized approach. So AdSense is obviously number one. So they make money off YouTube ad sales and YouTube does that. Is that the biggest percent? Are you going like in order of biggest to smallest? It depends on the client, but I would say it's one of the biggest buckets. It depends on many factors, including like, do you swear? How long are your videos? How many minerals are you running? What genre of content are you creating? And so it, it's dependent on a lot of factors, but that's usually one of the bigger buckets is YouTube AdSense. The next one is usually merchandise and apparel. So it's like if they launch their own t-shirt, hoodies, hats, brand that they want to sell. Our creators have gotten to digital goods. Most of them sell they're in video games, so most of them have a creator code with Fortnite or Minecraft or Roblox, or they have a Minecraft server, they have Roblox games or things like that. So digital goods have become a big part of creators' businesses. A lot of our creators also have mobile games or web-based games that they also monetize on. Another area that we've been focused on is consumer packaged goods. So launching different companies such as like a candy brand or a snacks brand or bed sheets. We're pretty well diversified in that range right now. And then the last one that we've actually put a lot of time and effort into is like studio deals and content distribution. So we've done a lot of deals with YouTube Originals. We're working with Nickelodeon on a few things. We have distribution deals with different platforms uh, such as Facebook, Snapchat, and then some international platforms and things like Amazon Prime Direct. That's also become a big bucket for some of our creators. So a person like Preston or Mr. Beast or something like that they should have six to eight different streams of revenue that are coming in. Any revenue streams not working? What, I was like, why don't they have like a food line? <laughs> it's like green beans or I don't know. That's what I thought at first. I mean, I think Jimmy could sell anything right now, to be quite honest. But it's all about like, what does our audience want? Like we never want to force anything down their throat. So we've been pretty careful with like, what kind of consumer products do we launch? And like, what do we think actually has sustainability over multiple years that you know, when that influencer doesn't want to continue promoting a video over video, it's going to live on and have a career after they're done making content. And so there's a lot of thought that goes into consumer products for us. Dude Perfect did. They just did a, a partnership with a company for beans that I think they own a percentage of. I was joking, but okay, beans are going to be big this year, man. That's funny that you said that because they did just do that <laughs> partnership with a beans company. We're at like the infancy stages of the bigger influencers, like at the top of the pyramid, realizing that they can have a tremendous value in owning their own products. They don't have to just go partner with Pepsi or Mattel. They can do their own products and make a lot more money. These videos that these guys do, a lot of the videos that seem to be popular on, on their channels are like 
if you like kiss me for a, a year, you get a million dollars or something like that. Yeah. Like that's that's kind of all the the rage that it seems. Like, I think Mr. Beast kind of invented or he made popularized. How do the economics of those work? Is it like every video is ROI positive? Like how does that actually work on the inside? So I guess give me another example, I, and I can talk to you. About no, there's like like the app one. You said, oh, if I pull my finger on the app, I get twenty five thousand dollars. Yeah, I, we didn't make any money off that. We just gave away $25,000 because we thought it would be a viral moment on the internet, right? And we wanted to kind of control the press for that day and get everyone talking. And it was a obviously a trending hashtag on Twitter and things like that. So some of this stuff is not just for monetary gain. Some of it's like, hey, like let's take over the chatter on the internet today. A lot of Jimmy's videos, like that's what they are, right? He came up with a lot of different types of content. He did the Twitch donation videos, which became really popular. That was like one of the first things that he started doing. Spending 24 hours in a place, which to that point, not a lot of people had done. And Jimmy was like, you know what? I'm going to do a bunch of videos about spending 24 hours in this place. And then the most popular one that he created was um, last to take hand off something keeps it. And I believe it started with last to leave circle gets $10,000. Uh, and then it went into the next one. It was like last to take hand off Lamborghini keeps it. And then now it's like you go on trending on YouTube. It's like it's either a 24-hour video, a last-to-leave video, would-you-rather video. It's like all these things that Jimmy kind of created in 2018. And now we're trying to like figure out, like, okay, what are the next things that everyone's going to copy that Jimmy does? I guess not all of them are profitable to do? Or oh, most of them no, are? they're definitely not. I mean, Jimmy's... Yeah, I mean, people can see, like, there's one video in 2019 where we gave away a million dollars. Last-to-take-hand-off million dollars keeps it. It was a giant case with a million dollars of cash in it. And the last person to take their hand off, it got to keep that money. And then the next video is spending a million dollars in 24 hours. Uh, so that was like our big series in December of last year. Definitely didn't make money on those videos. Like giving away a million bucks, like you're not usually going to make that back in AdSense. What do you recommend for the smaller YouTubers out there? So yeah, I get this question a lot. So I recommend... What question do you not get a lot for them? It's a good like, question. Like just keep going? Yeah. Because sometimes when people, it's like if you get it, it's annoying for you to answer. It's a popular question because a lot of YouTubers are like, how do I break through? Like, what do I need to do to like be successful on this platform? Like, what steps should I be taking with my channel that has 10K subs to get to 100K subs? Like, that's a lot of things that, you know, I get asked in public or when I'm on panels or when I'm speaking. So the thing, and, and this is something that Jimmy will tell you too, is like the most important thing that you can be focused on is ideas, right? YouTube used to be a game of, of just like churning out content. It's like post a video, two, three videos a day, throw darts at the wall, see what sticks. It's not like that anymore. Now, like you have to be thoughtful with your creative. You also have to have a good title and thumbnail because you have to get people to not only click on your video, you have to get people to stay and watch that video. If they click on your video and they leave in the first 30 seconds, you lost, right? It might have helped you with your click-through rate, but your average view duration significantly decreased. So... What Jimmy would say and what I've started telling people is you really need to spend a lot of time focusing on like what those ideas are. Because one idea, one good idea and one good video can change your career. It really can. And so if you focus most of your time on like, okay, what's one video that I can create that I think a lot of people are going to click on? And then how do I make that video fun to watch so people engage at least 50 to 60% of that video without leaving? That's what people should be focused on. Not, okay, there's a new video game out. Let's just go play the game and then be done with it. And you've probably seen this with Mr. Beast Gaming Channel. It's like, they're very thoughtful about the ideas. It doesn't matter what game they're playing, but they're going to have really good ideas that go along with that game. Thus, like, people are going to click, people are going to watch. There's, you just gained 2.8 million subs in the last month just on that gaming channel. 
smaller YouTubers and smaller content creators need to be more thoughtful about what those ideas are. You're much better suited posting one video a week that gets 100K views than posting 10 videos a week that each get 10K. That's not the game. Mm. That's what people need to understand is YouTube doesn't really reward daily content anymore. Unless it's like daily content that is like Jimmy kind of posts like four videos a week on the gaming channel, but they're all really good, well thought out videos. And so that's the one thing that I tell a lot of these like up and coming YouTube creators to focus on is a lot of it just comes down to the idea and then the execution of title thumbnail. You know, for our channel, it feels like it's a treadmill. It's like, okay, more video, more video, more video. And maybe, and maybe that is also part of the game too. It shouldn't. It should be like a, it should be like a staircase, right? It should be like you post a video, it gets 10K views. Then you're like, okay, it did well, but like, what should we have done better? And then you improve on it and you post a better video that gets 20K views. And then the next video gets 50K. It's like a stair step. That's what YouTube should be. It shouldn't be a treadmill. It should be more of like a staircase. And I think the more creators that think about it that way, the more successful they'll be. But I just think that people are thinking about YouTube in the wrong way. It's not TikTok. You can't post four videos a day and expect to blow up. What have you learned about YouTube that people on the outside aren't, don't know? That like a normal viewer doesn't realize? A lot of things. I think I've, I've truly started to understand how their algorithm like suggests content and like why it's suggesting certain types of content. There's a lot of myths of, of YouTube's algorithm and how it works and can you get shadow banned and, and all kinds of things like that. We've kind of been fortunate to learn from the people in the inside of like, hey, this is how this works. This is how this system sees your video. This is why this one gets suggested. And it's ever-changing. YouTube's not trying to update their platform and change how things work and, and all that. But, I mean, we've just been super fortunate as we've grown, like getting to know some of the people on the product side of YouTube, and people in search and discovery and partnerships. And they've been great to us and really helping us understand like how we need to specifically curate content for this platform. I just feel like there's other things that you probably know that the viewers don't like. I'm just like, oh, Mr. Beast, nice video. That's funny. Next video. Yeah, I just it, there's only so much I can say that probably doesn't violate some type of NDA that I've signed with Google or someone else over the last like years. It's a hard question for me to answer just from that standpoint because there is a lot of stuff that's confidential. I was just saying maybe on the creation side that people don't get to see. Sometimes it's nice. To, I'm, I'm kind of curious, like what happens in the kitchen. Yeah, so this is like one thing too is. Uh, Jimmy's videos are 100% authentic. If he says he's spending 24 hours somewhere, if he says he's going on a roller coaster a thousand times, like that's actually happening. Like there's no fluff, right? A lot of people think that like, oh, okay, I rode a roller coaster for, for 24 hours. Yeah, no, he was on the roller coaster for 24 hours. I had to sit there for 12 of them. So they're 100% legit. And most of our clients, that's like one thing that they take a lot of pride in is, hey, if we're titling the video this, like we actually have to do it. Right. Like we're not going to clickbait people into clicking in a video and then they get upset because we're not doing what we said. So that's one thing a lot of our clients, like I said, take a lot of pride in, especially Jimmy. I mean, we want it to be as authentic as possible. He also has a big team. YouTubers can no longer operate with just a webcam and a computer. Like there is some reaction channels that still do well. But if you want to compete at the highest level on YouTube, like you need a team. You need to build your own internal production company. You need to have a creative department. You need to have a production department, you need to have a post department. And that's like one thing that people don't see. And a lot of these these bigger channels, like they have a large team helping them. It's not just a single creator and a cameraman. Like that's really not the game anymore. Do they do a lot of promotion around the videos? Or is most of the work up front? Like when a video drops, do we promote it? Yeah. 
not really. And we'll post on social media and let people know it's posted just to give people a tip here. That's also something you don't want to do. So how click-through rate is measured on YouTube is based on clicks within YouTube. And so a lot of people I see make this easy mistake that they shouldn't is they'll post their video on Instagram with a swipe up link to go to the video, or they'll post it on Twitter with a link to go check out the video. And it actually negatively affects your CTR. You're clicking on that link and you're opening YouTube in like a, a different browser. You're not opening the native app. Where it's like you want people to open the native app or go to the web page and actually scroll through and click on your video. So it counts towards your click-through rate. And so that's one mistake I see so many YouTubers make is like they'll post a new video and they're like, hey guys, I just uploaded, swipe up to go check out the video. And then right there, you just got like 40,000 people that didn't count towards your CTR and your video is already off to a bad start. And so that's like one thing I would tell people is like, stop posting third-party links to your video. Just tell people, hey guys, I just uploaded a video, go open YouTube and click on it. Because you want like your dedicated fans to do that because they're also watching the video for probably the entire length of the video. And you want those people to actually go into the app, click on it, and then watch it. Dude, that was good. Yeah. That was one of those good ones. It makes me so mad every time I see it and someone posts on Instagram. They're like, yeah, swipe up. Reed, we don't know. I, we, how are we supposed to know? It's actually in terms of service. So if you, the creators would go in and read terms of service. It's in there. So CTR does not count against third-party links. Well, I want to ask for more, but then I don't know if I'm, I'm being greedy. No, I mean, that's like one simple thing that people just need to realize. And it'll probably make a significant bump on your channel if you're not like getting all of your viewership from a third-party link that you're putting on your social media. Just like small things people have to think about. Is there any other things like that that come to mind? So we just talked about CTR. So one of my other pet peeves actually comes with average view duration, which are the most important things, right? You want high CTR, you want high ABD. And it's like when you click on a video that says, hey, we spent X amount of days at this haunted mansion, and you click on the video, and it takes like a minute to see the haunted mansion. That's like another one of my pet peeves. So YouTubers need to understand, like, as soon as I click on that, that thumbnail, like, I want to see what I clicked. I don't want to have to wait and like fast forward to that point. You have to get right into the video. We just signed a client a couple months ago and he had a 30 second clip that would play before every single video. It was like, uh, Hey, here's my team. Here's this, like some music, but it played before every video. And I just like went on his dashboard and I showed him like your average view duration is getting so hindered because of this 30 second clip at the beginning. Like when people click on your video, they want to see the video. They've already seen this this thing that you have, like take it out. And he took it out. He went from doing like 30 million views a month to the next, like two months later, he did 90 million views a month. But his average view duration increased by a whole minute just because he took that out. And he's just concentrating on, okay, whenever that video title thumbnail is, like I'm going to focus on capturing that in the first 30 seconds of this video and then get into the video so people can, can follow along. And again, small details that you have to think about, but like average view duration is one of the most important stats on YouTube. People should really take in mind that like when you click on a video, people want to see what they just clicked on. They don't want to see a bunch of fluff or an intro or something like that. At what size is someone, should someone reach out to you? So someone out that's listening to the audience that has hundreds of subscribers, hundreds of thousands of subscribers, or I was thinking for myself, like when do we qualify to be part of the night media? We don't really have any like qualifications. It comes down to a few things. Like one of, one of our main pillars is like we don't sign creators, we sign entrepreneurs. We don't have a ton of clients. We only have 16 clients. Seems like a really small roster. But when you look at it, it's like 16 whales. That's a lot of our focus. We have a few like 
smaller channels that we focused on growing, but most of our channels are quite large. So there's really no qualifications outside of that. Like we have to obviously get along with them. We have to see growth. We have to see where we can provide value. I get hit up by a lot of channels with six, seven, eight, ten million 10 million subscribers. And we turn a lot of them down, to be honest. They just have to kind of fit our criteria of, hey, if you don't want to do more, then you're probably not right for us. If you're willing to take risks, if you're willing to start businesses, if you're an entrepreneur, you're probably right, at least for a conversation with us. That's kind of how we view it. I'm ready for Night Media. <laughs> Mitchell, we got we to do this, dude. You got to apply. You're like the Y Combinator of YouTube. Not from a content perspective, because we're not like in the day-to-day production, but I guess from like a finding creators that we think have an ability to go from a $2 million business to a $20 million business, yeah. Well, it seems like the content creators like are the next Tom Hanks, next Brad Pitt's, next no, not generation of... No, so this is common misconception. Oh, interesting. Content creators are the next Disney, the next Nickelodeon, the next Fox. People don't realize these kids are building their own intellectual property. We've seen it with Baby Shark, right? Like an intellectual property that was incubated on YouTube that now is a, a toy brand in Target and Walmart. We're seeing it with creators that we represent that are like, hey, I'm going to create this character and I'm going to call him Jeff. And Jeff is a character that's going to live in my videos and I'm going to get a trademark on him and I'm going to make this whole ecosystem around him. Then I'm going to launch a toy on my website and then we're going to take it to Walmart and Target. They need to be viewed as, as more Disney Nickelodeon and less like, oh, they're the next version of Tom Hanks or Tom Cruise. Because that's not right. And maybe for some it is, but that's not how we view it. Like These guys are the next media company. They're not the next celebrities. Dude, I love that. That's fire. I get that a lot too. Like, hey, is Mr. Beast the next, like, The Rock? And I'm like, no, 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 no. He's the next, like, Comcast. It's an amazing way of looking at it. I like that, that perspective shift. If people don't have a manager or business manager, how can we negotiate better or, or do better business as content creators? Yeah, there's a lot of good lawyers out there, to be honest. A lot of good entertainment lawyers. We utilize lawyers a lot in negotiations with different clients and getting different terms and structures. I think that the hard part is there's not a lot of good managers in the entertainment space yet or in the digital entertainment space. There's a lot of good managers in traditional Hollywood. There's not a lot of managers in my space yet that know what they're doing, that can actually move the needle, that can bring opportunities. We just haven't got to that point yet. And so hopefully conversations like this that we're having or hopefully other things that I'm doing or other people are talking about convince more people to come into this industry, to learn about the industry, to become a manager, to help content creators. I just think we haven't matured to that point yet, unfortunately. Again, like I hope I'm helping with that. I hope I look back in 10 years and I'm like, oh my gosh, look at all the management companies around digital media right now. There's thousands, right? Like I hope we get to that point. We're just not there yet. There, unfortunately, for a lot of content creators, there's not a lot of good management companies. Very few and far between. So I just think we need to mature a little bit more in the space. And I do think a lot of traditional Hollywood agencies and managers will start to lean into this space a little bit and start to go, hey, like I represent a lot of actors and actresses. Maybe I need to look at what's going on on TikTok or YouTube and Instagram. But we're just not there yet, unfortunately. Is there really not? I kind of assume like CAA and like, you know, WMA would just start like jumping at the space if they're not already. They're both somewhat successful in the space and they represent some content creators. They sit on more of the agency side. Like we actually work with WME on a few of our clients. Uh, we have a theatrical agent and a literacy agent at WME for one of our creators. Um, but for the most part, like we just kind of play the management game. We don't play the agency game. We actually work with CA quite a bit as well. I guess I'm just talking more in terms of like managers. There's not a ton. 
What's the difference between the manager and the agent? I mean, there's quite a bit of differences. Like one is um, agents are regulated, obviously, by the state of California. Managers just predominantly are more in the weeds on the day-to-day of the business, right? Where agents predominantly have been very high level. And when you look at it from a traditional standpoint, like they're the ones negotiating the contracts for a certain actor to act in a movie, or they're negotiating the musician's ability to then go on tour and what percentages they're getting on tour. And the manager's like the one that travels and the one that's there and the one that understands what's going on and the one that has to like get them to sign that contract. I think they're getting blended together a little bit over the years, especially in the digital space, but that's been like the core differences over the years. Dude, you guys have like a a wide open field. Should we not air this episode so we don't create more competition for you? I don't think it's as wide open as I'm saying. Like there is, there's probably five management companies right now that do a really good job. Outside of that, hopefully there's a bunch of people trying to get into this space. I wouldn't say it's wide open. We're also not signing hundreds of creators a year. Like we're not playing that rat race. We sign the like maybe three a year, if that. We're playing a little bit different game. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't say it's wide open. There is some management companies out there. There's just not a ton. Two last things. One, have you thought, I'm sure you've thought, is it something you're interested in to opening like a management company of managers? No, 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 not at all. I'm having so much fun doing what I'm doing. I'm getting to produce shows. I'm getting to launch companies. Like that's just not something, not to say we'll never do it. I just don't think it's something that we would do in the next couple of years for sure. I mean, we just have too much on our plate at the moment. Does a manager, like if I wanted to go be a manager, do they take like a percentage of overall revenue or how does that work? For that specific creator? Yeah. Like let's say Mitchell goes and does the synchronized swimming videos uh, and I manage him. I want 80% of all that revenue, by the way. Dude, well, you inspired it, so you're definitely getting a cut. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, it works different for different managers. I mean, all of them kind of said what they think is fair. But usually, yeah, it's like based on overall revenue. Because I guess you're incentivized if the revenue grows. Yeah, I mean, managers usually don't eat unless there's actually some revenue. So if you sign a creator that's not currently making any money, as a manager, you're not making any money. Like you're incentivized to actually grow their business so you can actually get paid. What's the ballpark percentages? I don't even know your amount. I'm just curious, ranges. To be honest, like I've heard it range like 10 all the way up to, I've heard crazy numbers, to be quite honest. I have heard numbers in the 30 to 40%, which is insane to think about. But that's kind of the range is like 10 to 40. And I, I've actually seen a lot of 30% in the past like year, which is on the higher end. Have you talked to your parents? Have they come visited? Have they been in a video? Have that come full circle? So up until a few years ago, I think they were totally oblivious to like what I did and who I worked with. They now kind of leaned into it where they watch our clients. They tune into Jimmy's videos. They're pretty leaned in. My dad also sits on our board. So I've got him a little bit more involved in our company. But yeah, I, there was <laughs> a, a while there where they literally had no idea. They couldn't wrap their head around it. And what can our audience or, or we do to help you the most? moving forward? I mean, I just, like I said, I, I hope that, you know, this conversation leads into people working in not, and not just as a manager. I don't want people to think that's the only, uh, the only route here. There's a lot of opportunity within this digital space from being a YouTuber to even on the development end of, of working on Roblox games and Minecraft servers and working on Minecraft marketplace all the way to making thumbnails for creators. If you're really good at graphic design to editing. I mean, there's a lot of opportunity in this space. All of our clients are currently hiring in almost every category. We can't find qualified people quick enough, to be honest. It's just, it's so new. 
making YouTube thumbnails wasn't a thing until about three years ago. And there's only a handful of people that I can name that do it really well. And so there's a lot of opportunities. And I hope what people take from this conversation is like, you know, maybe I don't need to just get a business major in college. Maybe I can actually go out and make a living in the digital space right now because I'm really good at making YouTube thumbnails or I'm really good at editing. Like, I hope people get that out of this conversation. Dude, this was awesome. And I'm so, honestly, I'm really proud of you. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, so impressive. And I, I think you give a lot of hope. And a lot of like people are like, I don't know what to do. It's like, dude, there's unlimited things out there to help people with and do cool stuff, especially, I like that you use the word infancy. Because I think sometimes people look at YouTube and like, oh, it's all over. I'm like, bitch, we're going to probably live another like few thousand years. YouTube is not going anywhere. YouTube, I would bet on YouTube over any platform over the next decade. I honestly, like TikTok's interesting. I think there's a lot of uncertainties. YouTube's creator monetization platform that they've built is bar none the best in the industry. And so if I was someone like, yeah, YouTube's oversaturated, but like, I just saw like there's content now about home renovations. Like this wasn't a thing a year ago. Like I'm seeing home renovation channels pop up left and right. They're banging. They're doing so well. And it's like new genres of content are going to continue to evolve on YouTube. People say it to me all the time. Oh, it's oversaturated. Like I'm not going to be able to, to get through. I'm like, I fell on an ASMR rabbit hole a year ago. And now there's hundreds of ASMR channels. Like there is continued access and ability to create content on this platform. I just hope people realize that. I'm actually, for us, we're making four, we have like a pretty small channel. We make $4,000 a month, which I'm honestly shocked. I'm like, I don't know how we're even getting paid that much. It's really good. Yeah, we don't have any views. We have awesome people, but not bud. It's just amazing. I'm like, how are we even getting this money? Well, how long are the videos? About 10 minutes. Are you guys doing mid-rolls? I don't think so. So how many views did you have last 28 days, like trailing 28? Uh, 191,000. So you guys have made 4K up 191,000? Wait, what's the channel name? Let me dig into this. It's just my name, Noah Kagan. But yeah, we made $3,659. I mean, your guys' RPM is incredibly high. Like really good. Like really, really good. So are you guys running mid-rolls? No, should we be? Oh yeah. So you should run a mid-roll like every three minutes on your video. I guarantee it that your ad revenue doubles. The reason why you guys have such high RPMs right now is because your brand has more, is like an older, more mature audience. And so YouTube is seeing that and they're basically serving you ads that are converting really well. And that's why your ad rates are so high. Whereas like some of my clients who are kid-based channels have really low ads um, because it's like little kids watching their videos, right? Whereas most of your viewers are probably some people that have enough money, like spendable income to buy something. Or when they see an ad, like they can actually act on it. And I think that's why your guys' RPM is so high. It's like Tim Ferriss. Like Tim Ferriss's RPM, I'm sure is insane. I'm sure it's like $14, right? Does it affect our like watch time or viewership if, by adding these ads or like reduce the amount of subs we have? No, people are just so used to mid-rolls now. So your last video is 11 minutes and 30 seconds. Like what I would do is you do a pre-roll, then I would do a, an ad at like four minutes and maybe an ad at nine, and that's it. Like, try that out and see how it affects your average view duration graph, but I bet you won't even see a dip. That's also a common misconception on YouTube. It's like, oh, mid-rolls are going to kill my average view duration. It's just not the case. Like, people are used to watching ads. I don't know. It's so funny because I have YouTube Red. It's like the best $10 I spend a month. Same. And plus, you can share it up to six people, so I'm paying like $1.50 a month. Yeah, I mean, some of, the th some of your thumbnails are good. Oh, yeah. If you have any feedback, do you mind? So your, your titles are really good. Like I rented a 23,000 per month beach house in Malibu. So the title should have been, I rented a 23,000 
dollar Malibu beach house. That's what the title should have been. Or renting a $23,000 Malibu beach house. It was a little wordy. The issue is like, it doesn't look like it's a really nice house from the thumbnail. Like, it looks like it's like cool. Hold on, so I should write her. I can just change it now. I yep. rented a $23,000 a month beach house, Malibu beach house. Renting a 23000 Malibu beach house. All right, I just changed it. Go to Phase Rock's channel. He just did like a, a house tour. It's like the official reveal of my $10 million house, right? And kind of look at that thumbnail. But it kind of gives you a scope of like how these like extravagant house video thumbnails need to be. Is like you and like right or left and then house like filling most of the thumbnail. And I think you'd have had a lot more success with that video. Because the video actually was like we, we hired like a pro editor on that one. And it, the video is great. I can watch the video. I was just basing it just on the thumbnail. Yeah, if you have other feedback, I think there's stuff that like we're learning and we could share and like others will be like, oh, that's cool. I would need to watch the whole video. I guess my note is just on the thumbnail, just kind of looking at it from a high level. Behind the scenes of the real Wolf of Wall Street. You guys do um, do a lot of research on like past videos that have done well. Like if you search real Wolf of Wall Street, I bet there's some videos that have banged. Yeah, the real Wolf of Wall Street question mark by Vice, 4.2 million views. Um, what was real versus friction in the movie Wolf of Wall Street? Wolf of Wall Street, 643,000. So I think like you can just, the real Wolf of Wall Street uncensored, 1.4 million views. So you can just get a sense of like, what are people searching for in this category? And I think you should make a video very similar. The real Wolf of Wall Street, how I became corrupted, 1.9 million views. Because these obviously have done really well. So I think the premise of the video was really good. It was just the execution with title and thumbnail probably was the reason why it didn't go off. How much do you think about revisiting a lot of this stuff? Kind of hit or miss. Like, I think you could change some of them and they might do really well. But uh, some of these have been up here for so long. This is kind of like the process that you guys probably have to go through when you upload. We do a little bit, but it's just nice to hear it from a different perspective. You also need his face. You should have got a picture of him during the interview. So his face could have been in the thumbnail. We still can. We have pictures of it. What would you change that title to? I would have to watch the the interview to like see if there was anything that jumped out, like about like drugs or something, and then I would name it something like that. It's like looking at some of these podcast clip channels. I think will give you a good idea of how to title videos as well. Like Joe Rogan's clip channel, they do a pretty good job of like pulling a long form interview and doing a bunch of clips. Dude, this is dope. Was there anything else you guys wanted to, to go over quick? No, no, that was amazing. I'd love to, to get more <laughs> feedback and kind of like tear down. I think you probably don't realize how much you know. But I appreciate everything you've been able to share. And I'll take you out for uh, some like BCAAs when I uh, drive through Dallas next time. Oh, yeah. Well, it was nice meeting you guys. I appreciate it. Same here, brother. Later. Take care, man. Later. That's a wrap. I hope you loved the episode as much as I did. If you did, go give Reed some love. Tell him you heard about him here on Instagram. It's at Reed, R-E-E-D-J-D underscore. Go tell him you heard him here and you liked his stuff. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's start an agency together. And before you go, tweet at me at Noah Kagan and let me know what you thought of this episode. I'd be curious to hear. And don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash okdork. As well, we're giving away the Tesla. So you can find out on youtube.com slash okdork if you're a subscriber or go to appsumo.com slash black dash Friday dash giveaway. And finally, a couple shout outs to my amazing team. I appreciate you guys and girls for everything you do, men and women. Special thanks to Jason at podcasttech.com. As always, for making these podcasts sound so nice and clean. Thank you to David, Mitchell, Jeremy, and Jen from the Dork Team for everything you do and all the video editors who are helping us out on YouTube. And a final special shout out to Erica Set, 
our partnership manager at AppSumo. Thank you for everything you've done. Have a lovely day. What's your favorite salad dressing? <laughs>